welcome to Do We Know Things, a podcast where we examine things we think we know about sex. Content warning. This podcast will include discussions about sexual desire. Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Lisa Don Hamilton, professor of psychology and sex educator. Today on Do We Know Things, myths about straight men's sexual desire. It's reinforced so much by our media culture that it's almost become cliche. Men are horny all the time, right? How many movies or TV shows are made about the horny teen guy that just wants to have sex with anyone or anything, or the legendary smooth pickup dude that's celebrated for hooking up with a different partner night after night? And yes, there's always the overused stereotype of the lecherous old man. Gender stereotypes annoy me. And it's not just the media. This simplified version of men's sexuality is also often repeated by researchers and other experts. I can't tell you how many conferences I've been at where the presenter shows an image that depicts men's sexuality as a simple on-off switch and women's as a complex collection of buttons and knobs. It's so frustrating. But here at the Do We Know Things podcast, I'm all about challenging assumptions about what we think we know about sex. And this episode is no exception. I'm excited today to challenge some myths about heterosexual men's sexual desire with my guest, Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray, who's a therapist, author, and sexual desire mythbuster. We'll go beyond the old trope of men are simple creatures that only have one thing in mind to explore a more nuanced view of male sexual desire. That's coming up on Do We Know Things. But first... This is the last episode of 2020. And what a wild and terrible year it has been. I just want to reflect on that for a minute. In Canada, the COVID-19 pandemic shut many things down on March 13th. We've all been living with the lingering fear of COVID for the last nine months. I recently did an interview on my friend Dr. Jonathan Horowitz's podcast, Succeed Under Stress, which will be out soon. During that interview, we talked about COVID stress and how it might impact sex and relationships. It's so important to keep in mind that living during a global pandemic is a chronic stressor. It's having an impact on all of us, whether you're a frontline worker at a grocery store or in a hospital, or if you're hiding out in your home feeling trapped. We all respond to stress in different ways, so if you don't feel like yourself these past nine months, that's totally understandable. I know my usual scatterbrain has been extra scattered. The panic I felt in the early pandemic has calmed down quite a bit, but my brain still hasn't fully adapted. I won't get to see my West Coast friends and family for the holidays, which is hard, but I'm happy to do what I can to reduce the spread of COVID. And what a holiday treat it has been to see that the vaccines are here. I'm feeling very hopeful about seeing the end of the pandemic in the coming year as we all get vaccinated. Overall, it has been a stressful and tragic year, but there've also been good parts. I'm glad I've been able to continue to make this podcast. It has provided me with a bit of an anchor in what sometimes seems like a sea of chaos. I'm grateful to still be here, and I'm grateful for you, my listeners. Good riddance 2020 and on to 2021. Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray is a therapist and writer whose book, Not Always in the Mood, The New Science of Men, Sex, and Relationships, examines the myths around heterosexual men's sexual desire. 
In addition to her book, Sarah also has a column on Psychology Today called Myths of Desire, and she blogs at her own website, sarahuntermurray.com. She's also a marriage and family therapist based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm delighted to welcome Sarah here today to talk about some of the myths she has studied about men's sexual desire. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So you are an expert in male sexuality and male desire. How did you get there? So really great question um, and something that's important to talk about off the hop because I am a cisgendered woman and I started my sex research career um, trying to understand the complexities and nuances of women's sexual desire. It spoke to me. It was, you know, I, I felt like I was curious about, you know, mine, my peers' experiences. It seemed relevant to like explore women's sexuality and sexual desire specifically. Over the course of my research, though, it started to become more and more apparent that we were kind of having a conversation only about the complexities of women's sexual desire. And not only that, it seemed like there were some comparisons where we would talk about, you know, women's desire being, um, again, like kind of complicated, impacted by so many different factors, having to take into like relational components, age, um, you know, biology, culture, all of these things. And instead, we would just kind of talk about men's desires being simplistic or, you know, very surface level, or we don't have to kind of get into the nuances of men's sexual desire because it's just kind of high, there, unwavering, and again, just kind of simple in nature. And over time, it just started to strike me as wait a second, like, is that true? Like, that seems a little, a little too straightforward, maybe kind of talking about men more in a, as robots versus like complex humans. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So I wanted to dig into the research um, and, and actually conduct research, I should say, doing qualitative interviews with men, talking to them specifically about their sexual desire and asking, are these stereotypes and assumptions true? Or maybe is there something else going on under the surface that we're not really talking about? Okay. And I assume that is what led to your book, which is called Not in the Mood and focuses on a a series of myths about male sexuality and male sexual desire and is absolutely fascinating and really brings out the nuance and the complexity of men's sexuality that has by and large been ignored. Mm -hmm. So tell us about the first myth, the main myth of your book, which is that men are always in the mood. How, what are some of the challenges or myth-busting things that you found in your work? Yeah, what I'll start by maybe saying is that I, I did my dissertation on men's sexual desire, and that was when I um, conducted face-to-face interviews, and I was just, you know, interested in what men would say. You know, are, are there times where you're, you know, your desire's high? Are there times your desire's low? Are there times where you're not in the mood for sex? And the thing that struck me right off the hop was that men typically answered the question, by saying, oh no, I always want sex. So they'd kind of start by playing into Mm -hmm. that stereotype that we might expect. And I would say, oh, that's so interesting. So like, there's really like never a time that you would say no. And it was only that quick follow-up question, which all of a sudden brought up all of these other examples. And so men would start saying things like, oh, well, I mean, like if I had a cold or if I was sick, then I wouldn't want sex. (laughs) Like, okay, fair enough. Or if I was really physically exhausted after a long day of work, I wouldn't be in the mood for sex okay. And so we started kind of like the ball started rolling. And then as we went on, there was more and more examples of times that men said, you know, my desire is not as high as it used to be. Again, these are men kind of in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, reflecting on, you know, their teenage years or when they were in their 20s saying, well, yeah, I don't want sex all the time like I used to. 
So it's really interesting just to kind of ask that one follow-up question, which just turned into this snowball effect of times where men said, actually, there's lots of times that I don't feel like sex. Even men who have high sex drives who might be really sexually active or prefer to be Mm -hmm. sexually active still have a range of other emotions that happen that may prevent them from actually being in the mood. Yeah, and and that complexity, the fact that men are not automatons or robots <laughs> that potentially have feelings and preferences around sexuality uh, is something you talk a lot about in the book. Uh, and I was wondering if you could give some examples of cases where it's very clear that it's not just a sexual, like a constant sexual desire or just a desire for release all the time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that stood out both in my interviews and then I also conducted additional research after my dissertation to inform the book. So um, my dissertation included uh, 30 men where I did these in-depth interviews. And then I was also wondering what would happen if I interviewed more men, but via the internet so that there wasn't this desirability bias or there wasn't like different answers that it might give me as a woman asking men about their sexual experiences. So mm-hmm. what I speak to in the book is about my dissertation research and then this larger qualitative study that I conducted afterwards. That I think it's really important to frame this conversation um, by acknowledging that my research um, and my book is largely on the heterosexual experience. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, I just want to make that crystal clear. So yeah, the men that I interviewed for my dissertation were in heterosexual relationships. The men that I you know, did research on after um, on the online open-ended questions, heterosexual relationships, uh, men in my practice a broader range of sexual orientations, but the book really talks about specific dynamics about breaking down how men are raised in terms of their sexuality, how women are raised in terms of their sexuality, and what happens when men and women who have been raised with those social expectations interact with each other. And the thing that struck me was how much men talked about the emotional needs that they had met through sex. Mm -hmm. And that if their emotional needs in their relationship weren't being tended to, that their sexual desire wasn't as strong. So a really good example of this is if men were in a relationship um, with a female partner, they would say that, you know, if we're fighting, if we're not getting along, if we're not seeing eye to eye, like if we're just not on the same page, then my desire to have sex with her goes down. Because they were highlighting how sex was not just this physical act. It wasn't just this itch that needed Mm -hmm. to get scratched. That it was this emotional expression and feeling that they had. And so if these other parts of their relationship were out of whack, their sexual desire could be too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One example that I like from the book, it's under the heading, World's Worst Hand Job. (laughs) And I love this story because I've actually heard a version of it from a number of my Mm -hmm. married friends. This idea that their female partners think that as long as they're doing something, providing some sort of physical contact that they're doing their job and this is what they're supposed to do is their wifely duty. And the example in the book is uh, of a scene from Breaking Bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit to that. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. So the scene in Breaking Bad, and I, I guess I should say a lot of scenes that I see in in media and movies and TV shows are striking me differently, like since doing this research. And I'm amazed mm-hmm. at how many times men's sexuality is portrayed in this stereotypical way. And um, in this Breaking Bad scene, um, uh, 
and you'll have to forgive me because the names are escaping me right now. <laughs> Walt and his, his, his wife, I can't remember his wife's name. Um, but they're lying in bed and it's his birthday. And, you know, there's kind of the suggestion that, you know, maybe it's his birthday and she should be giving him some kind of sexual stimulation, but she's kind of made it clear that she's distracted and not interested in having like sexual penetration. So she just kind of reaches over and starts giving him a hand job. And she's detached emotionally. She's kind of looking at her phone or her computer or book or something like that. She's distracted, barely paying attention, just, you know, putting her hand on his penis, rubbing up and down. And his expression the whole time is just, this is not doing it for me. (laughs) You know, like there's no uh, like excitement. There's no like, oh, this is exactly what I was after. And I think what's so um, important about that scene is that it highlights like, if it was just physical touch, like his wife's hand is on his penis and giving him stimulation, but it's not doing it. He wants connection. He wants her to be enthusiastic, involved. Like he wants that moment that they can share. And what's so unfortunate about it is that if she believes that that's what he wants, I just think it kind of short changes a lot of emotional like connections for men and women. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it makes women feel like, oh, all you want is my hand. Like that would be satisfying to you. I mean, it kind of doesn't make us feel so great about ourselves or as like a sexual partner. Uh, mm-hmm. So we have this idea that men are hoarding all the time, that they always want sex. They don't care how they get it, you know, even though you've clearly demonstrated that the, that not all sex is going to be enjoyable or worthwhile to have. Uh, where do you think this mythology comes from, this idea that men are just constantly turned on and ready for sex? Mm-hmm. So um, there's some evidence that this could become from more of like an evolutionary theory background. The idea that uh, men might be kind of wired to spread their seeds, that they are benefited, evolutionary speaking, to kind of be in the mood if they've got a female partner that they've come across to like in the wild or whatever, who's ready to procreate or, you know, ovulating, that he would be, in, it's in his best interest to pass on his genes by being ready. So there is this evolutionary explanation for why that might be the case. Moving forward, you know, when we talk about social norms, you know, we get into sexual script theory and talking about what are men expected to do. So what Mm. actually the experience isn't necessarily as important as what they're supposed to quote unquote experience. And in our society, men, for the most part, still tend to receive more rewards for being you know, sexually charged, having more sexual partners. It's considered like manly and like masculine to have a high sex drive. And so separate from what men actually truly experience, you know, whatever their actual sex drive is, there is this idea of, you know what, I might be perceived as more popular amongst my peers or more desirable by a female partner if I do have this higher sex drive or if I kind of portray that my interest in sex is constant um, and that I'm, I'm ready at the drop of a hat. And what do you think the consequences are of that myth? I'm thinking both in terms, and you've touched on this a bit already, but in terms of say long-term relationships or also new hookups, like where people are, maybe a woman is initiating with a man and he says, no, thank you. What consequences or what are the ramifications of believing that men should always be ready to have sex and re- always ready and willing to have yeah. sex? Great question. And my research primarily focuses on men who are in longer term relationships. And so in that context, a lot of the men in my research spoke to their very acute awareness of 
of what is expected of them or what is expected of men. And some of the challenges they felt when their own experiences didn't match up to the ideal or the norm of what they thought men should experience. So men in longer-term relationships sometimes described feigning a sexual desire, you know, kind of initiating sex that they weren't really in the mood for because their partner might think it was weird if they didn't. That sometimes they would Mm -hmm. agree to having sex with their partner because they thought she would be offended if he said no. There's, of course, some Mm -hmm. folks in long-term relationships who described having more of an open conversation with their female partner and being able to say no. But there was a lot of pressure that sounded like it showed up in these relationships. And a lot of pressure that men put on themselves. Sometimes their female partner wouldn't even know the inner turmoil that they Mm -hmm. were experiencing, right? They were kind of wrestling with their own identity and not matching up to this idea of like, well, guys in the locker room said that they want sex all the time. What's wrong with me that I don't? So there's that pressure that definitely shows up in longer-term relationships. But your point about what happens in more of that hookup culture um, is, it's a great question. And I think there's some more research that's starting to touch on that dynamic where, you know, in a hookup situation, again, particularly in a heterosexual context or a mixed sex context, women assume, um, because that's what we're taught. Again, it's not that women are like, you know, at fault here, but women assume because this is what we're all taught socially that men are interested. And so if we are, and we initiate sex in a casual context, like, of course he's in the mood, of course he's interested. That's what he wants after all. But what we're hearing is more and more stories of men in um, college and university settings saying like, that's not necessarily the case. Like maybe in some situations, sure. But in other situations, men are talking about feeling pressured to have sex that they didn't want, feeling that there was potentially something that falls under the category of a sexual assault. Because the assumption is like, of course you want it. Like, don't be silly. Like all men want sex and here it is. You should be happy versus saying no. Mm-hmm. One of the things I've witnessed with friends of mine and also heard about from students in my classes is when in in a casual sex sort of context, when the man says no, often the woman will then decide that he must be gay Mm -hmm. and perhaps tell people that. And I remember specifically a student in my human sexuality class that came to me and said, you know, this person who I'm really attracted to had way too much to drink and I didn't feel comfortable. And I basically said, let's meet up another day. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she took that as a rejection because men are supposed to always be in the mood and then wouldn't talk to him anymore, told everyone he must be gay. And this was someone he was genuinely interested in. And so I think there's so many ramifications of this idea that men are always in the mood. And I completely agree. And it's interesting to hear that in, again, more of these casual sexual encounters, Mm -hmm. it still happens in long-term relationships. And, you know, I work as a therapist and I have clients who have been together for months and sometimes years who like the woman, if her male partner is experiencing a decrease in sexual desire over time, Um, or if he's had maybe a lower sexual desire over the course of their whole relationship is questioning his sexual orientation. Like if you don't want to have sex Mm -hmm. with me, is this a bigger issue about some kind of hidden sexual orientation? Like, are you gay? Are you attracted to men? Like, is it that you're not attracted to women? And, you know, I, I've, I've spent a lot of time working with couples to really kind of work through some of these fears and normalizing I mean, it's one thing if that's true, but but usually in these situations yes. I'm talking about, like, it's just, you know, and, and he starts freaking out, like, I don't know how to navigate this. Like, I don't want her to doubt my attraction to her. I don't want her to doubt my attraction to, you know, women in general, if he identifies as heterosexual. He's like, I just am not 
in the mood for sex all the time. <laughs> like, what is so wrong with that? Uh, to which I at least can confidently say, like, absolutely nothing. But we have to do a lot of damage control about how some of these stereotypes show up and really infiltrate our relationships. Mm-hmm. One of the things I study is the relationship between stress and sexual arousal mm-hmm. and response, um, and more recently, desire. And that's something you talk about as well. And I, I don't think people fully understand how much stress in your day-to-day life can interfere with sexual desire or sexual responding. Like it's it's hard to pay attention to sexual cues and sexual stimuli. And f- when your brain is somewhere else, if you're worrying about money, worrying about work, worrying the, about the kids hearing you, whatever it is. Absolutely. I imagine that's something that must come up in therapy sessions with you, or and I know you mentioned it in the book as well. Yeah, and it, it, it's it's such a great point. And I think we are, as a society, aware of how much stress we're under. And I think we're paying more and more attention to all the different ways that stress can show up and impact our mental health and our physical health. When it comes to sexual desire, however, we've been talking more about how stress impacts women and you know mothers. Mm-hmm. And of course it does, and that's super important to talk about. We just haven't had that same discourse about how stress impacts men's desire, right? The assumption, again, is, you know, the desire is so strong, stress would be secondary. Like, it's not going to impact or infiltrate. The desire is constant, high, like nothing's going to, you know, impact it. Mm -hmm. But again, um, both in my clinical practice and, you know, in my research, Ben described that there is a lot of stress that they're under and they can't be stoic about it all the time, right? They do have emotions. Mm -hmm. Like some of these things sound so crazy to say because it seems like so obvious, except that we kind of don't talk about it. Being a dad, you know, however much like financial responsibility is on your shoulders, like, you know, whether it's things around the house, families who are sick, relational stress, like there is a lot of things that are impacting our day-to-day well-being. And men are not immune to those to those stresses and it's completely natural mm-hmm. and normal for that to play out in terms of your sexual desire some people say sex is a great release when they're feeling stressed but mm-hmm. it's also incredibly common to just say you know what i'm too stressed i can't even think about it like i don't have the mental capacity to entertain the possibility of sex and on top of it Again, like according to like traditional sexual scripts with men and women, men are the more active participant during sexual activity. So sometimes that stress and feeling exhaustion, like it's in most cases, the expectation going into it at least might not be like, I'm just going to like kind of lie back and, and, you know, my female partner is going to do most of the work here. Like the sexual scripts again, Mm -hmm. and we can challenge them and it's not like every situation for every couple, But men still kind of, at least in my research, talk about how the expectation or the assumption is that more of the responsibility is on their shoulders during sex, Mm -hmm. initiating, you know, kind of being more active during. So, so yeah, so if stress is high and mental load is high and those things aren't always so appealing. Absolutely. And it sounds like as you're talking about that, I was thinking about how it seems to really fit into this larger constellation of our stereotypes about the male gender role. So you're not supposed to have emotions. You're supposed to want sex all the time. You're only supposed to care about, I don't know, winning and being successful. And you're also, you're supposed to be aggressive. And yeah, just as you were talking, those things kind of came to me that it is, it does seem to be part of this overall gender role. I completely agree. There's a bigger um, discourse and narrative about men 
and masculinity right now. And the desire is one piece of it, an important piece, but these expectations show up in a lot of parts of men's lives, I believe. I just wanted to pick up though on the, just the, the idea about like the dominance and the initiation, because that's another thing that really stood out in my research and, and that I talk about in the book is that the expectation in, in traditional sexual scripts and for heterosexual couples is that men are the ones to initiate, that they flirt with their female partner or tell her that she looks nice, you know, that they buy her flowers or, you know, like chocolates or something for Valentine's Day. And it's, it's a lot of like, you know, I am the one who's giving or I'm the one who's reaching out or I'm the one who's kind of pushing to that next level of sexual activity. But the men in my research are, have really kind of said loud and clear that they're ready for these gender norms and, and sexual scripts to change. That rather than being the dominant one, rather than being the one to push or initiate or suggest, they would actually, in a lot of cases, prefer to be in a more passive role and for their female partner to be the more dominant one. And mm-hmm. I mean, that can certainly include things in more kinky, like BDSM aspect, but I'm talking about just like in a like really kind of more vanilla sense, like just having their female partner mm-hmm. initiate sex in the first place, yeah. give him compliments about how he looks, surprise him with like a bit of a, you know, like a foot rub or like just even a kiss, like not even overtly sexual, just something romantic, but be the recipient and how important that was for his desire to have her, you know, initiate or kind of, you know, start the ball rolling instead of all that responsibility falling on his shoulders. And I just thought that was so interesting because we think about men being in these dominant roles, not just in the bedroom or in a sexual capacity, mm-hmm. um, but particularly in this area. I mean, men were really saying, it's fine sometimes, but it's nice to at least kind of hit more of like a 50-50 or perhaps even more so, like, you know, be the more passive right. partner every now and then and having, um, being the recipient of compliments and sexual initiation and romantic touch. Yeah. Like who doesn't want to feel desired and desirable? I, I can't see why anyone would argue with that. I completely agree with you. And, and it's kind of something that's been really funny about doing this research is I'm at the point of talking about it now where I'm like, I hope that doesn't sound offensive anymore. Cause like, it's like, of course everyone wants to be desired. However, I still, you know, put this stuff out there, have conversations with people who say like, I really didn't know that. I never really thought about that. Women who kind of say, huh, am I doing that? Like, am I doing that for my partner? Men who are saying, oh, like that's the language, right? Like that's how I can describe what I've wanted. And I think sometimes when you have that, like, oh yeah, of course that's true. It just mm-hmm. is an indicator that, oh, okay, we've really like touched some, like, you know, hit the nail on the head here. Like this is resonating. Of course it's true. The next question is, are we acknowledging it? Are we doing it? Mm-hmm. Does that feel uncomfortable? You know, sometimes for women in my practice, especially women who are maybe in their like forties, fifties, sixties, they talk about actually having sometimes a difficult time turning that script on its head. They've been living it longer. Um, It's more ingrained that good girls don't, right? Like good girls don't Mm -hmm. initiate sex. You are supposed to be more passive. So to actually kind of be a little bit more assertive in their sexuality, you know, initiating touch of any kind or, you know, like just offering some of those, um, those pieces into the relationship can feel quite unfamiliar and a bit uncomfortable. So, I think there's something to be said for common sense. And then the next step is, but are we, are, can we implement it? Are we doing it? <laughs> or what would it take to kind of right. change things a little bit here? Yes. 
So one of the questions that came up from one of my male friends about this topic was, are there patterns or trends in how sexual desire for men changes over the lifespan, say from teenagers to retirees? Is there an observable shift? Um, Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So again, in big, broad strokes, generally speaking, what we see is that, you know, due to hormonal spikes, most men report that they do have um, a higher sex drive in their teenage years and 20s. And my research has really focused on men who are kind of 30 and beyond. And it's interesting that men, even as young as like 30, 31, will reflect that their desire isn't quite as high as it used to be. And like other research outside of my own kind of documents that are, it's normal for a sex drive to kind of slow down a little bit as we get older. There's, you know, a term called andropause, you know, kind of the male equivalent of, of menopause where androgens and testosterone level, levels are thought to go down a bit. That's been found to maybe be associated with a lower sex drive over time. But also some of the things we've been talking about before, like increased stress, like as a, you know, 17-year-old, I'm not saying that high school <laughs> isn't stressful or maybe you're trying to make the, you know, f- football team or I don't know, whatever it is. I'm not saying there's not some, but I think we can all reflect back on that time and think of it as like fairly carefree compared to, you mm-hmm. know, say if we're in our 40s and we've got a job and a mortgage and a car and potentially kids or a pet or just those kind of things. So it is quite common for sexual desire to decrease over the course of our lifespan. But I'm always cautious to talk about things in too broad of strokes because there are certainly men um, that I've spoken to both in my practice and in my research who could be in their 50s or 60s and say, you know what, my sex drive is the highest it's ever been. Like, I'm more in touch with my okay. sexuality now than I ever have been before. My partner and I are exploring things in ways that we might never have before. I've spoken to in my clinical practice, I don't talk about it quite as much in my book, but men in their 20s who are very concerned about having very low sex drives. So there's kind Mm. of trends that yes, generally speaking, there is that decrease over time. But I think it's important to always note that there's a lot of exceptions to the rule. And if you're 20 with a low sex drive, there's lots of reasons that that could be the case. um, And that's not necessarily something that needs to be big or cause a big panic. Um, And if you're lucky Mm -hmm. enough to kind of continue to be working on your sex life into your later years or midlife and beyond, you know, there's a lot of possibility to still have a high sex drive later on. um, If that's something that's important to you and you're kind of working on, I suppose. (laughs) So on do we know things, my focus is very often looking at things we think we know about sex and debunking debunking myths. And one of the things I love about your book is it is basically framed around all of these myths around male sexuality. So there's the overarching men should always be horny myth or men should always be in the mood myth. But each chapter is named after a myth. Aside from this idea that you know, men are always in the mood. What is the next most important myth or thing that you think we should touch on? Yeah, I mean, there's a, certainly a lot of, uh, as you say, each chapter is a different myth and a different piece of the puzzle and kind of breaking down things that we misunderstand about men's sexual desire. We've talked about kind of the initiation and desirability piece of it. The thing that I might bring into the conversation is what it feels like when men's sexual advances are turned down. Um, in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And um, in that chapter, I talk about the sexual rejection myth. So really what I think is happening is that we, again, and I say we, men and women and, you know, non-binary, like everyone in our society continues to receive this message that men are looking more for that physical release, that sex is more, you know, just about kind of quote unquote getting off and that men are always horny. So like they're always initiating sex, like they always want it. And, And so 
what I'm hearing is that when men are initiating sex, that it's not just that when their female partner says no, that they're like, ah, dang it, like didn't get sex today, like Mm. felt like a burger, didn't get a burger. Like (laughs) what men are talking about is that there's actually a lot of vulnerability involved in initiating sex because it is so much more than just that physical, that physical itch or scratch or however you want to put that, that a lot of times when men are initiating sex, there's this desire to feel more of a connection, more closeness with their partner. And they're kind of putting themselves out there saying like, I'm attracted to you. I'm into you. I'm turned on by you. I want to be closer to you in this moment, like via some kind of sexual activity. And so when their female partner says no, which obviously is going to happen in relationships, men talk about how it, they spoke in my research about how it started to kind of take a toll on them um, in a more emotional way. So it wasn't, again, just like, Mm. I really want sex. That's kind of a bummer that we're not having sex. I mean, that's a feeling that we can have. But men talked about how it started to kind of erode their sense of self-esteem, their confidence in the relationship. They're wondering, like, you know, is she still attracted to me? Like, is there something wrong with me? Mm -hmm. Like, did I do something? And when I talk about sexual rejection, I always want to be crystal clear. I mean, there's always going to be times where we don't want sex in a relationship outside too, obviously, but I'm going to talk about relationships specifically here. And it's always okay to say no, right? We never have to say yes Mm -hmm. to sex that we don't want to have. That is not encouraged. But I Mm -hmm. think what's important to acknowledge again is the different ways that the emotional side of sex is being overlooked when it comes to men. And if we are being vulnerable in putting ourselves out there and trying to kind of have this bid for connection and closeness. The thing that I focus more on um, in the clinical setting is how are we rejecting and what assumptions are we making about our male partner if he's initiating sex? If we feel like he just wants to get off and we just happen to be like the only socially acceptable partner that that's okay to do it with, then of course we're going to be like, no, buddy, like get out of here. Like that doesn't make us Mm -hmm. feel nice. Mm -hmm. But if we can kind of acknowledge Mm -hmm. and appreciate that there is so much more to it, that there is this desire to be close, this, you know, wanting to connect and, and have that like shared intimate moment. And it has to do with like wanting to connect with us specifically. Mm -hmm. I think we can, you know, I'm all about being kind in relationships, right? Like there's way to ways to acknowledge that and say, you know, I'm not in the mood for sex, but like, do you want to cuddle on the couch? Or maybe we could just make out for a little bit, or I'm not in the mood now, but like, Mm -hmm. I will reach out to you when I'm ready or later on and like kind of return Mm -hmm. the favor, right? Like that's a healthy relationship. It doesn't mean that you have to have sex just because your partner or husband wants it. Like, of course not. Um, Right. But I think it again speaks to how much emotion and connection and intimacy is involved rather than that, again, stereotypical, just looking for physical gratification. Um, and how it can really negatively play out in relationships. Again, we're talking about men's like well-being and self-esteem, and we're talking about women kind of potentially feeling not all the love and affection that their partner is trying to show because we're again falling into like mm-hmm. old stereotypes that like oh there's no way that he's experiencing those emotions like it's quote unquote just sex for him. Right. I think that's so important. Taking a step back and, and focusing on what is really needed here, like can we cuddle? Can we make out? Are there other ways we can meet needs that would work for both of us? Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. And the bigger picture is, again, um, you know, we're we're talking about pretty broad strokes. We're talking about men and women. Um, But a lot of men haven't been given the same amount of space um, socially, like, you know, growing up from their parents or from their friends as they get older to express their emotions. And, you know, we think about like women, 
it's not uncommon for women to like hold hands or to give their friends a hug or to kind of sit on the couch watching a movie in kind of a cuddling capacity. Men don't typically do that to the same degree, right? There's right. there's less right. of that. And so instead, men are again rewarded, or maybe they sometimes only get some of that physical affection through sex. That doesn't mean that's the only way that they might like it. It just means that that's the way that, you know, a lot of men talk about kind of being socially reinforced. But again, I, I, the amount of examples that men gave, like, I'm not always after sex. I just want to hug. I just want to touch. I just want to like, mm-hmm. you know, a quick like sway or a back rub or, you know, together or something like that. Like, it's just those things that are so important. And um, it kind of breaks my heart how often they get overlooked. Mm-hmm. What would you say in terms of either your clinical practice or just to, to the men and women in relationships in the world? Uh, what is your best advice for getting past this? I think we just need to kind of pause and just ask ourselves, like, what assumptions are we making about men and women's sexuality? And are they true or do they have to be true? And even if they're true for some people, do they have to be true for me and my partner and our relationship? I think challenging stereotypes about men's sexual desire are just as important about as challenging stereotypes about women's sexual desire. Um, we don't have to belong to these narrow boxes. Men don't have to want sex all the time in order to be considered manly or to be, you know, celebrated. Like there's a lot of variation in terms of how our sexuality is expressed way beyond what we're going to talk about in this podcast, of course. But I think this idea that men's desire is like strong, omnipresent, like lacking complexity is just continuing to hold men in this box like it's just not giving them the space to say yeah that is me or for others to say yeah that's not right like if your desire Mm -hmm. as a man is high and you're always down to have sex great (laughs) that's allowed right Mm -hmm. like you have to navigate that with your Mm -hmm. partner or partners but like there's nothing wrong with that as long as that's your true authentic experience I just want to create a little Mm -hmm. bit more space through having conversations like this to say, you know what, if that's not your experience, that's okay. It's okay for men to say, I break from the mold. There's sometimes I'm super horny. There's other times where stress gets the best of me, or maybe over time my desire has gone down, or, you know, my partner and I just really haven't been getting along, so I'm just not feeling it right now. And that's not reflective of like me being less than, that's just me being a human. And for women to pay more attention and say, his desire isn't always a reflection of who you are and your sexuality or your relationship or your attractiveness. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of other ways that he can express his love and attraction and feelings for you, even if he's not ready to have sex the second that you kind of give him that smile. (laughs) Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate this conversation. It was very interesting. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure to chat with you. Wow, there was so much great info in that interview. One thing that particularly resonated with me about my discussion with Dr. Murray was that in the beginning of her interviews with some of the men, even the men bought into the idea that they always wanted sex until she asked that one small follow-up question. This idea that men want sex anytime, anywhere, with anyone is just so ingrained that it distorts men's own beliefs about themselves. I remember first really thinking about these stereotypes when I read Leonor Tiefer's essay collection, Sex is Not a Natural Act, for the first time, back in 2004. That book, which I highly recommend, was very influential on me and really shaped how I thought about sex and sex research. I've also had many a conversation with straight men about their experiences not wanting sex 
and not feeling like it was a valid choice, or being mocked for it, or having their masculinity challenged. Let's be really clear. No one wants sex all of the time. Sometimes you'll feel crappy. Sometimes you'll be really focused on work or some other project. Sometimes you'll feel disconnected from or mad at your partners. Sometimes you just won't be interested. And all of those things are fine and normal. You are not a robot. The people you have sex with are also not robots. However, if you do feel distressed about a lack of desire and don't think it's just because of societal pressure, then I encourage you to seek out a sex therapist or talk to your doctor. That's all for this episode. Dr. Sarah Hunter-Murray's book, Not Always in the Mood, goes into these topics in even more detail. I definitely encourage you to check it out. It's full of great info. If you have any feedback or peer review of this episode, I'm always excited to hear from you. You can send me a voice memo recorded on your phone or just a written email to doweknowthings at gmail.com. You can find a script for this episode with references and extra info on the website at doweknowthings.com. All music and sounds in this episode by Jeremy Dahl. You can check him out at palebluedot.ca. Script assistance by Matt Tunnicliffe. I'm Lisa Don Hamilton. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doweknowthings, and you can email me at doweknowthings at gmail.com. Do We Know Things is released every second Monday, and you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Of course, I would love it if you could subscribe and rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next time on Do We Know Things.